Chloroform is a colorless, sweet-smelling, dense liquid that is a powerful anesthetic, euphoriant, anxiolytic, and sedative when inhaled or ingested. It can also be used as a murder weapon. 40-year-old Thomas Edwin Bartlett found that out in 1886 when he never awoke to enjoy New Year's Day. A lethal dose of chloroform was found in his stomach, and it was believed his young wife was responsible. Today I tell the tale of the Pimlico mystery on the 160th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. Thank you so much for joining me today. I can't wait to tell you this remarkable story. And for the story, I have Alfred Hitchcock to thank. I was reading the book, Hitchcock Truffaut, in which Francois Truffaut interviews Alfred Hitchcock about his amazing career. It's a great book and really shows what a genius Hitchcock was. Anyway, at one point, Hitchcock mentions a real crime that at one time he had been thinking about turning into a film. It was called The Pimlico Mystery. I'll talk more on what Hitchcock said at the end of today's show. I think many who write about the story assume a lot. I often read things and say, wait, what? How did you know that? Where did you get that information? One book I read had information on the murder victim all about what kind of person he was, and, uh, and I thought to myself, just how did the author know that? A little artistic license, maybe? I looked all over. I couldn't find that information. But luckily for me, there's a complete transcript of the trial that's available online, so I was able to get a lot of things from that. Of course, I didn't read the whole transcript. It was quite lengthy, but it was a big help. Anyway, this is another long one, so I think I'm going to get right into this it. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. The man you hear breathing is named Thomas Edwin Bartlett. He is in bed and sleeping. Breathing deep the night air of Pimlico, England. Mr. Bartlett is a heavy sleeper. A deep breather, too. Rhythmical and serene. An almost lullaby quality for young Mrs. Adelaide Bartlett, his wife, who this night sleeps at the foot of his bed. Rhythmical. Serene. And just at the stroke of midnight, just when a new year has begun, Mr. Bartlett stops breathing. Mr. Bartlett has just died. It was about 4 a.m. on New Year's Day, 1886, at 85 Claverton Street in the Plimlico District of London that 31-year-old Adelaide Bartlett woke the housemaid, Alice Fuller, and said, Alice, I want you to go for Dr. Leach. I think Mr. Bartlett is dead. She was talking about Thomas Edwin Bartlett, her husband of 11 years. Dr. Alfred Leach was his doctor who had been treating him for some time. Alice replied, don't say that. 
as she quickly got dressed and left. The doctor just lived a few minutes' walk from their house. Mrs. Bartlett next went downstairs, to the room of Frederick and Caroline Doggett, the owners of the home the Bartlett's rented an apartment from. She began knocking on the door. When Frederick answered, Adelaide said, "'Come down. I think Mr. Bartlett is dead.' As he put on his dressing gown, Adelaide went back upstairs, Frederick Doggett following minutes later. As he entered the front drawing room, he noticed the smell of chloric ether. It also seemed to him that someone had recently stoked the fireplace. Adelaide asked, Do you think he's dead? as she looked down at her husband on the bed in the corner of the room next to the fireplace. He was there lying on his back with his eyes closed his left hand on his breast, which was visible due to his nightshirt being pulled up. As Frederick Doggett put his hands on Edwin's bare chest, he could feel his body was cold. Again, Mrs. Bartlett asked if he thought her husband was dead. Frederick answered, Yes, he must have been dead two or three hours. Then added, He's perfectly cold. His wife explained that she had fallen off to sleep with her hand around his foot. Now, this might sound a little odd, but Adelaide had the habit of sitting herself at the foot of the bed and reading as her husband went to sleep. She awoke with the pain in her hand and found him laying on his face. Turning him over, she attempted to pour brandy down his throat with the hopes of reviving him. Moments later, Mrs. Doggett arrived, then Dr. Leach. Frederick Doggett asked if Adelaide had closed the dead man's eyes, which she replied, yes, she did. As soon as Dr. Leach entered the room, he could see the man was dead, but gave an examination to be sure. He agreed with Mr. Doggett that the man had been dead two or three hours. Dr. Leach noticed a one-ounce bottle of chlorodyne on the mantel above the fireplace, and next to the bed was a wine glass three-quarters filled with brandy. A little over three months later, in April of 1886, a trial began. Adelaide Bartlett was accused of killing her husband by administering a fatal quantity of chloroform. Also accused was Reverend George Dyson. The Reverend had been a friend of the couple's for quite a while and may also have been Adelaide's lover, who she had been seeing for some time. The accused was born Adelaide Blanche de la Tremoille in Orleans, France in 1855. And I apologize to my French listeners for that pronunciation. Our story, however, begins in 1875 when she was only 19. It was then she went to live with her uncle in England. But apparently, her uncle really didn't want the responsibility of taking care of his niece, so he arranged for her to live with a man named Charles Bartlett and his wife. It was through them that she met Charles' 30-year-old brother Edwin, a wealthy grocer. And on the 6th of May, 1875, the two were married. Edwin's father, Edward Sr., never approved of his son's choice for a bride and did not attend the wedding. His father had considered Adelaide to be self-centered and manipulative. Now, it is often said that the marriage was a platonic one, possibly due to Edwin suffering severe unpleasant illnesses, including rotting teeth and tapeworms. Yet, when Adelaide wasn't away, the two slept as man and wife in the same bed, and as I will talk about later, Adelaide did become pregnant. She did say later that only once in their married life did the two have sex. 
But according to Molecules of Murder, Criminal Molecules and Classic Cases by John Emsley, she may have been talking about unprotected sex, not recreational sex. In fact, condoms were found in Edwin's pockets. Annie Walker, a midwife who attended to Adelaide, was asked at the trial, as far as you can judge, were they living together as man and wife? And she stated, yes. And then, were they on affectionate terms with each other? And she said, very. I bring this up because many versions of this tale state that the marriage between Adelaide and Edwin was in name only, that it was a cold, sexless union. But I think there's evidence to the contrary. Most likely it was an arranged marriage, arranged by her guardian. It was, however, a marriage that worked out well for many. For Edwin, Adelaide's dowry helped him with his growing chain of grocery stores. And she was a pretty woman that Edwin, who was handsome but shy, could be proud to call his wife. For Adelaide, she would be allowed to continue her education while living in a respectable situation. Some have suggested that her family was really pushing for this because they feared the embarrassment of the revelation of her real personality. Unfortunately, I don't really think anyone really knows just what kind of woman she was, what kind of dark past she had, if there was one, or if she was or was not in love with Edwin. Soon after the wedding, Adelaide was sent off to boarding school for a year while Edwin worked on his growing business. After that, she went to a convent in Belgium for a little added finishing. She would write her husband letters, and he enjoyed reading about all the things she was learning. When she returned, the two began living together in a conventional husband and wife relationship. They moved around to different places over the years. For a while, they had an apartment above one of Edwin's grocery stores. Life was most likely hard for Adelaide. She was from France and living in England, probably lonely with very few friends, and Edwin was a hard worker who would be gone all day long. He would get up early and not come home sometimes until as late as 10 p.m. Adelaide was stuck at home doing normal housekeeping things, rarely getting out. Sometime around 1878, Edwin's father, who had come to live with the couple after the death of his wife, accused Adelaide of having an affair with Edwin's younger brother, Frederick. It appeared both had gone away at the same time, and when they returned, Edwin's father accused them of being together. Adelaide insisted that she had been at her aunt's home, and Edwin Jr. was more than willing to believe her, so much so that he demanded that not only did his father apologize, but he also signed a document stating that his accusations were untrue which he did. Many today assume the affair actually did take place, but again, I don't believe anyone knows for sure. And like I said earlier, Adelaide did become pregnant, but after a painful delivery, the child was still born. The midwife, Annie Walker, who was there for the delivery, attended to Adelaide as she recovered. Our story really gets interesting when the Bartlett's met Reverend George Dyson, a 27-year-old handsome man with a dark curly mustache. This was about a year before Edwin's death. Dyson met the couple when they attended his service at his small chapel. The three became friends, and Dyson began visiting their home since they lived in the neighborhood. 
Edwin asked George Dyson to help tutor Adelaide, and so he became a regular visitor to their home, teaching the young wife Latin, history, geography, and mathematics. When the Bartlett's moved further away, Edwin would pay traveling expenses for George to continue his lessons. When the couple took residence at 85 Claverton Street in the Pimlico District of London, Edwin presented George with a season railway ticket. Just what was the type of relationship between Adelaide and George? Of course, both said that there was nothing going on between them, but many believe otherwise. It has been described as anything from a secret little romance to one which Edwin was totally aware letting George and his wife indulge in their wildest desires. Some even claimed that the two would have sex while George was at home, fully aware of what was going on, wanting his wife to get the passion that he couldn't provide for her himself. The housemaid, Alice Fulcher, stated at the trial that she had seen George Dyson arrive after Edwin had left for the day. When he arrived, he would change his clothes from his clerical outfit to an old coat and comfortable slippers. Both Edelie and George would go into a back drawing room. More than once she entered and noticed the curtains not only were pulled shut, but pinned together so they would stay closed. They would sit on the sofa together. Sometimes Adelaide would be on the floor with her head on Dyson's knee. He would often stay for lunch and even have dinner with the couple after Edwin returned home. In Edwin's will, he had a provision that Adelaide would inherit all his wealth on the condition that she never remarry. From what I have read, this was common back in the day. But four months before Edwin's death, he had that provision taken out. During the trial, George stated, I remarked, I remember, how her husband seemed to throw us together, and I asked how it was. I thought it was remarkable. She told me that his life was not likely to be a long one, and that he knew it. And she repeated what he had told me himself, that his friends were not kind to her, that they did not understand her, being a foreigner, that he had confidence in me and affection for me. I am giving these words as near as I can recollect. And he wished me to be a guardian for her. He knew I would be a friend to her when he was gone. Dyson also stated during the trial, speaking on Edwin Bartlett, he had made statements which left no doubt on my mind that he was contemplating Mrs. Bartlett and myself being ultimately married. And then, a few minutes later, I can remember this, my lord. He had been finding some fault with Mrs. Bartlett, not angrily, but correcting something. And I said to him, if ever she comes under my care, I shall have to teach her differently, or some such words. This statement makes Adelaide sound more like one of these men's possessions rather than a wife or friend, but I guess that's just the way it was back then, huh? According to Dyson, Adelaide told him that Edwin had been sick for four or five years and would probably be dead by the end of the year. But the fact was, Edwin hadn't been sick, not at first, but then suddenly, in November of 1885, he did fall ill, having severe stomach pains. He called Dr. Leach, who noticed a blue line on the margin of Edwin's gums. This was a sign of lead poisoning. Leach, however, thought maybe Edwin had taken mercury due to syphilis. 
Edwin denied he had syphilis and said that he enjoyed a normal sexual relationship with his wife. Some believe Adelaide tried to poison him with lead acetate. From what I've read about trying to kill somebody this way, it may cause great stomach pains, but it really is not effective in causing death. It would take a long time to finish somebody off like this. Perhaps it was too long for Adeline. Whether she did or did not poison him, she did stay at his bedside night after night, nursing him back to health. It was only after he got better that she told George that Irwin was experiencing great pain and could not sleep, and that the only thing that could help was chloroform. The way chloroform was used for sleeping back then was to sprinkle it on a napkin or handkerchief and have it placed over the mouth and nose. The fumes were great for easing pain and helping with sleep, but of course left going for too long could easily cause death. She told him that Annie Walker had gotten some chloroform for her in the past, but she had gone to America, so she asked if George could help get her some to ease her husband's pain and help him sleep. He agreed, so she gave him some money to make the purchase. After trying a few places, George was able to get chloroform on Monday, the 28th of 1885. He told the pharmacist he wanted the drug to remove grease stains from clothes. He had to go to three chemists to get the amount he was looking for. Apparently, when buying poisons such as chloroform, you could only purchase small quantities without questions being asked. But if you wanted larger amounts, you had to sign for it. So by purchasing one-ounce bottles at various places, there was no need to put his name down. Now, if you ask me, this sounds a little suspicious. When he returned home, he combined all the chloroform into one bottle, labeled it, and the following day brought it to Adelaide. Three days later, on December 31, 1885, Edwin Bartlett was having real problems with his teeth. At around 5 or 6 p.m., Bartlett and Dr. Leach visited dentist Thomas Roberts so he could have a tooth extracted. When he got home, both Adelaide and Edwin talked with Mrs. Doggett, the wife of the landlord who lived downstairs. They told her that Dr. Leach had recommended that they go to the seaside for a change, but Adelaide thought it was too far away. Then Adelaide asked Mrs. Doggett if she ever used chloroform. Mrs. Doggett said yes a long time ago. Adelaide asked her, was it nice or pleasant? Mrs. Doggett replied that she didn't know much about it. When the Bartlett's walked away, it was the last time Mrs. Doggett ever saw Edwin alive. What happened that night, we don't know. But about 4 a.m., Mrs. Bartlett would wake her maid and tell her that she thought her husband was dead. Suspicion began to fall on Adelaide as soon as Dr. Leach arrived at about 4.30 a.m. and began to examine the body. Her story of finding Edwin face down and then turning him over couldn't have been real because it was obvious to him that Edwin had died on his back. Also, about pouring brandy down his throat, a dead person wouldn't be able to swallow. Later that day, Adelaide had the brandy glass taken away and washed. When Edward Sr. arrived, he demanded a post-mortem. This was done on the following day. They discovered the strong smell of chloroform when the stomach was opened. Adelaide was now a suspect. 
she would have to leave the house since it was now possibly a crime scene. She went to stay with Alice and George Matthews, good friends of the Bartlett's. When Reverend George Dyson visited the Matthews' home, he wasn't too happy. By then he had learned about the chloroform in Edwin's stomach. When he asked what happened to the chloroform that he had bought for her, Adelaide seemed irritated and told him to stop bothering her. The following day, George threw the three empty chloroform containers away. The next day, the two began to argue about the situation, about the chloroform and the fact that Adelaide predicted Edwin's death, something now she denied. We know all this because Alice Matthews overheard the confrontation and she testified about it in court. Alice said as Dyson left her home, he muttered, I am a ruined man. Sometime later, George learned from Alice that Adelaide had lied to him about Edwin being sick and dying for years. A bit of evidence that was found in the Bartlett's home was Squire's companion to the British Pharmacopoeia. When it was presented at the inquest, it seemed to have opened almost automatically to the page on chloroform. On the page, it told how chloroform would evaporate rapidly and leave no unpleasant odor. It also said how it could be mixed with brandy to be used as a sedative. Both brandy and chloroform were found in Edwin's stomach. On January 26, both Adelaide and Dyson were arrested for the murder of Edwin Bartlett. The charges against Dyson were quickly dropped. This may have been because, at that time in England, as I understand it, a defendant couldn't testify in their own trial. By dropping the charges on Dyson, they were able to concentrate on Adelaide and put Dyson on the stand. The best argument the defense had was the question of just how did Adelaide get the chloroform into Edwin's stomach without burning his mouth and throat, which chloroform would surely do. And of course, he would have noticed chloroform in his drink, right? And if he passed out and she forced it down his throat... Some of it would have been in his lungs, which it wasn't. The prosecution argued that it could have been accomplished by mixing it with brandy. The trial lasted a week, and the jury spent two hours considering their verdict. When they returned, they were asked if they found the defendant guilty or not guilty. We have, the foreman said. Although we think grave suspicion is attached to the prisoner, we do not think there is sufficient evidence to show how or by whom the chloroform was administered. There was a moment of silence. Then the clerk asked, Then, gentlemen, you say the prisoner is not guilty? The foreman answered, Not guilty. The crowd in the courtroom began to happily cheer and applaud. This was most likely because the defense portrayed Adeline as a woman who had been trapped in a cold, loveless, arranged marriage. By the time the trial ended, most who followed the case were on her side. The outburst angered the judge who said, This conduct is an outrage. A court of justice is not to be turned into a theater by such indecent exhibition. On the issue of how the poison got into Edwin's stomach without burning him internally in his throat led the famous surgeon, Sir James Pageant, to make his famous quip. Now that she has been acquitted for the murder and cannot be tried again, she should tell us, in the interest of science, how she did it. Adelaide. What? Don't you find your husband... He's like a boy. I mean, strange. 
What happened just now? He is a boy, and I despise him. He's your husband. You shouldn't speak like that about him. I'm sorry he's my husband. What would you do if he weren't? You know. I know. I want you to tell me. The things we talked about, if he weren't my husband. I want to tell you something about me you didn't know, Adelaide. Please do. I was quite a chemistry student, too. I could teach chemistry if I wanted to. That is very interesting. Chloroform, for instance, is a chemical. Chloroform? I've heard of it. It belongs to the class of neurotic chemicals which act on the brain and produce loss of sensation. Can it cause death? You carelessly used, it can cause death. Then it is a poison. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to The Sad Sack. Before I go, the great detective fiction writer Raymond Chandler was intrigued with this case, and he wrote, Some persons tried for murder are acquitted because they are shown to be clearly innocent that one wonders why they were brought before the court. Some are acquitted because, although they are almost certainly guilty, some vital element of proof is lacking. And a very rare few are acquitted because a great lawyer is able to convince a jury that the means of the murderer itself is so unprecedented and so difficult as to amount to a technical impossibility. If Edwin Bartlett had died of the result of any ordinary poisons, Adelaide would have been duly convicted and hanged. But Edwin Bartlett died of chloroform poisoning. And chloroform is neither tasteless, odorless, instantaneous, nor easy to administer. It had never, so far as the then records showed, been successfully used in a homicide. To use it as a murder weapon amounts to a medical miracle. And on the medical evidence for the prosecution, Adelaide Bartlett was acquitted. As for Hitchcock... He toyed with the idea of making this mystery into a film, and in the book he described the scene that he envisioned. I wanted to shoot a scene showing the young Parsons making violent love to the younger woman, while the husband, sitting in a rocking chair and smoking his pipe, looked on. I would love to show him smoking very contently. From time to time he would pull away his pipe, making little noises that sounded like kisses. That's Alfred Hitchcock for you. No time for the ending credits today, but but before I leave, I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. I'll be back in two weeks with something, I don't know, great. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee.
coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff.